Tour de France is right around the corner. We here at Vela News again are about to drop our annual Tour de France guide. That is the print guide to help you follow along with the big race. As always, we have detailed profiles of all 22 teams in the race and detailed analysis of all 21 stages, including this year. We have Jens Voigt chiming in with his hot takes on the stages, whether it's a good stage for a solo rider, breakaway, GC rider, sprint. Uh, that plus some great in-depth feature stories uh, to take you inside the race. This year, we have a great feature that examines La Course, the women's race, and also examines the potential for a women's Tour de France. ASO have been talking about having a women's Tour de France in the near future. We talked to the pro women riders about what they would like to see in this race. So that plus all the information you have come to expect in the annual Velo News Tour de France guide. Uh, it is on sale now. Go to velopress.com. You can order yours today. Uh, thanks again for listening. Let's get on with the podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Villain News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you from a hot Tuesday here in my home office outside of Boulder, Colorado. Not in the office today, in the home office. If you hear a baby screaming in the background, that is my baby. I apologize. We're keeping it very professional here. Uh, got a great episode coming up this week. Second half of the show, I have an interview with Zoe Ta Perez. Zoe is one of the top junior female bike racers in the United States. She's a 12-time national champion. She's a current world champion on the track. And we talk about all about what it's like to be a teenage girl in America who's also a world-class bike racer in the age of coronavirus. I know there's a lot going on there. Last week, we caught up with Magnus Sheffield to hear what it's like being a teenage boy in America who's also a world-class bike racer. Uh, this week, Zoe takes us inside the female experience. And uh, I really enjoyed this one. You know, we talk all about like, how do you maintain a normal life in high school when you're like an elite athlete traveling around the world? And, uh, you know, what impact has COVID had on her pro ambitions? So thanks to Zoe for linking up on the podcast this week. Before we get to Zoe, um, our countdown to the Tour de France starts exactly right now. And over the next six weeks, we're going to have some detailed preview episodes about the Tour de France. We need granular people. We're talking climbs, stages, contenders, green jersey, white jersey, polka dot jersey. We'll make up some jerseys. We won't make up any jerseys. We'll stick to the traditional jerseys. But we're going to get really in-depth in the Tour de France. And this week, uh, Andrew Hood and James Start and I are having... I would say a 10,000-foot view conversation about the Tour de France route, the types of riders that benefit from this route, how it differs from recent routes, etc. cetera. Uh, if you are a big-time cycling dork, you may have noticed that like, there's not a lot of information out there on the 2020 Tour de France route. ASO has not released profiles. They've released some profiles. They haven't released detailed maps of the route, etc. cetera. Um, we've gotten our hands on them for the guide, and so we have some takes and some thoughts on this year's Tour de France route. So that is what we're going to talk about first half of the show. Before we get to that, hey, I really want to thank everyone who has reached out to me on social media and email about ActivePass, the new membership program we launched a few weeks back. We're a few weeks into it. We're rolling. We're getting daily content for Active Pass readers, and we have people signing up to uh, you know take advantage of the benefits. Again, ninety nine bucks a year. You get 
an annual subscription to today's plan coaching, which is thousands of workouts, access to coaching. You, normally, it's like 150 bucks to pay for that. You get access to Roll Massif events. You get deals from brands you love like Jordana, Scratch, others. And, you know, you get this daily content. Um, in the last few weeks, we have been putting tons and tons of daily content onto the site. Stuff like... Andrew Hood's examination of the Yoseba Beloki crash from the 2003 Tour de France. That's the one that sent Lance Armstrong riding into a field. Um, Dan Cavallari has this great piece, Best Road Helmets Tested. I mean, he did a ton of work testing road helmets um, to sift out the best ones for you. We have a great profile of Vincenzo Nibali, an excerpt from Peter Sagan's book on what it was like to race the 2016 Olympics. Um, this stuff is coming in every single day, hot and heavy, and um, we think it's a great addition to Active Pass. So again, if you if you want to learn more about this, go to velonews.com slash Active Pass, and you can read all about it. Um, or hey, webletters at velonews.com. I read your emails, people. So thanks again to everyone who's reached out on Active Pass. Um, let's link up with James and Hoodie to talk Tour de France, and then we will hear from Zoe Taperez. Okay, I now welcome back on the line Andrew Hood and James Start. James Start, you've looked at a lot of Tour de France maps over the years. When you look at this year's map, you know, we have these stages to the south of France, not a whole lot going on north. What does it remind you of? Is there a shape, maybe like a squished cheeseburger, cheeseburger? Like, uh, what do you think of when you see this Tour de France uh, route. Well, it's uh, you know, it's been uh, it's 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 France cut 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 at the waist to down essentially. And uh, I remember seeing it at the Tour de France presentation and just loving it because you know July uh, this whole like like this last week in Paris the weather has not been great. It's off and on. And I've had you know how many times have we had rains in the opening week of July when the race goes across the north of France. So starting in Nice, you're pretty much guaranteed for the three weeks. And, and, you know, most of this is going to happen now in September when the weather's turning again anyway. So that's just fine. Um, so I see, um, I see a lot of sunshine is what I see. A very compact race that is honestly something I've never seen before and very exciting in many ways. How about you, Hoodie? What are some of the top line thoughts that popped into your head when you saw just the map of this year's route? Yeah, the big takeaway at the moment was the tour becomes the Welta Espana. Remember, I mean, we thought uh, we've seen the tendency of the tour over the last five years, shortening stages, taking away the prologue, taking away the team time trial, taking away the long flat time trials, taking away those big 225 plus kilometer mountain stages. You know, it really has become kind of a French version of the Welta. Perhaps it's no surprise. ASO owns now the Welta and the tour and most of the other big races in France. Uh, it's a tendency, you know, it, it makes for an interesting race. I mean, we can get into this a little bit later in the, in the podcast, but, you know, what it does is it sets up this tight race. It's going to be very close start to finish, just like the last year or two of the tour has been. But what it doesn't do for me is sets up this big kind of knockout punch scenario where you're going to have that one big day where the race really is decided. And that's what I think is missing. You know, it doesn't have that kind of grueling hard stage. I think it was Coltador a few years ago was saying when, you know, this, the tendency was going towards these shorter kind of punchier stages that, you know, you need to have that monster kind of, uh, you know, queen stage profile with four or five big climbs and 225 kilometer distance to really set up for those uh, kind of race breaking and race making moves that kind of 
kind of a, I don't know, really punctuate, I think, what a, a Grand Tour race is all about. Well, I, I think if you're Alberto Contador, that's one thing. But if you're a race organizer, it's a different thing. Um, you know, Contador wants that because it favors him. Um, but, you know, what's interesting here is that there is virtually, you know, the, this race can be won and lost almost anywhere because there's no none of those, you know, defining leg-breaking stages that, that only a couple handful of riders can actually be competitive in. Except that said, the final weekend is very much like the final weekend last year. You still – I mean, if somebody like Philippe is in yellow, he's still got to get through those 2,000-plus uh, climbs on the last two days, and they're going to be grueling. Yeah, when I look at this map, I mean, first of all, it is not a tour of France. It is not Le Grand Boucle. It is not a big circle around the country. You know, this is um, – it's a lap of the Massif Central. It looks like it's – you know, you start down on the French Riviera. You go Alps, Massif Central, Pyrenees, back up north, a couple flat stages, back – Massive Central, then into the Alps, um, up north to the Vos, you know, to La Planche de Belfi, and then to Paris. So, you know, nothing along the Belgian border, nothing in uh, Normandy or up north, none of those windswept, cold, rainy stages that we typically see. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, Hoodie, I mean, when you look at the stage lengths, I believe there is only one stage over 200 kilometers in length most everything is in kind of this 150 to 175 sweet spot um, of racing with a couple of stages you know 140 um, 122 you know there's definitely a few of these shorter stages short punchy stages that are obviously designed to, to you know bottle the excitement and keep the uh, race tight I mean this is the anti-giro you know like We've seen the direction the Giro is going in with these monster stages, these huge marathon days in the Alps. And this is just a, a truncated tour, a much shorter race than we were expected. And I guess I suppose it's going to do well for the riders being in September because it's going to be conditions that we don't really know. I mean, James, you are you live in France. You've been there for a long time. I mean, from a condition standpoint, what can the riders expect September as opposed to July? What's going to be different? Well, you know, what the, you know, as we saw last year in the tour, you know, with the mudslides on the final weekend, you know, the weather in France, as it is in much of the world, is now, is, you know, doesn't follow traditional trends. It's all up in the air. You could have a wonderful month of September, um, or you could have a terrible one. We just don't know. Um, being in the south of France, again, is going to help, I think. But, you know, when you do get storms in the south of France, they're violent storms and, and instantly, you know, flash flooding and stuff. So, you know, you never, you know, you, you, you know, you don't, we just don't know. It could be a, a lovely tour. It could be, um, you know, it's, it's so hard to project to just to project weather anymore because it doesn't follow the seasonal uh, traditions that we were, we, we all grew up with, you know? Yeah. But I mean, are we going to have any of those like near hundred degree days where people are like melting in their shoes? Is that something that you typically see in September? Uh, uh, no, not, not really. I mean, you might in that first week still, cause you're in the end of August, but, no, the weather is uh, well, you know, Marseille or something. It could, but so you might, you know, you may have a little bit in the beginning, but in the, but I think after that is going to kind of cool off. Uh, certainly by the second half of, of the race when you hit the Clermont-Ferrand and then start moving over to the Alps. Um, you said one thing though that you know we don't have any uh, stages up around uh, Belgium, windswept things. We have this one amazing stage uh, from uh, from these two little islands off the. The, the, the coast of, of Western France um, from Ile de Lorient to uh, Ile de Ré. And 
that is going to be a spectacular stage. And if there's any wind, that'll be even more spectacular. A, the start and finish are both in these gorgeous little islands. And then they go along the mainland, uh, but right, you know, right, right on the, on the, on the Atlantic coast. So plenty of chance for wind right there. Uh, the next day over to Poitiers also could, could have some of that. And, you know, there's a few other days where winds could, could play and play in, but you know, those two for sure could have a, have a factor. James, the, the sultry tones of your um, French pronunciation of these um, towns, you know, before we get going further, I think you need for the listeners to um, pronounce, give us proper pronunciation of all these start and finish towns. I mean, I think that cities like Nice, you know, everyone knows how to say Nice and Paris. It's, it's not nice. It's nice. not nice. I thought it was nice. There's, nice. there's parts of Nice that are not nice. There are parts that are also very nice. <laughs> um, let's go through these stages, James, and offer uh, your expert pronunciation so that all the listeners can be total Tour de France experts when they are on their group rides. <laughs> I'll give my best shot. So Nice is nice. It's nice. Nice. Cisteron. Uh, uh, Gap. Uh, Orsier uh, Merlet. Then what do we got? I got to try to read this. A uh, gap to Privat. Uh, Le Teuil to Mont Aigual. Mio to Lavour. Uh, Caser to Loudonvay. La, uh, La Rune to Pau. Ile de Lorient to Ile de Rey. Chataillon Plage to, where do we go? Poitiers. Chauvigny to Saran, Saran, uh, Châtel Guyon to Puy Marie. It's going to be a hard stage. Clermont-Ferrand to Lyon, uh, Lyon to Grand Colombier, Bourg-en-Bresse. Now it depends where where you come from. It could be Bourg-en-Bresse or Bourg-en-Bresse to Champagnole. Uh, then we go over to La Roche, La Roche sur uh, La, La Roche-sur-Foron. To Maribel, a little skiing in there if you want. Then we got Maribel to Grenoble. Is that Grenoble? I think I'm trying to read. I'm just trying to look at this map. Uh, no, wait a minute. Is that right? Or is it Villard de Long? Uh, Maribel to Villard de Long. Then we got Vill- oh, no, then we got Villard de Long to Le Tour du Pain. And then where else are we going from there? Uh, and then. I got a little bit lost. Yes, our Tour de France finished riders are not, uh, they're not going to make it to the finish if they are following your uh, directions, yeah. James. But I do appreciate the proper pronunciation here. I think we left off at Borgen, Borgen, Borg and Bress. Borg and Bress? Borg and Bress to Champagnole, and then Lourdes to La Planche de Bellefille, and then Paris. Mont la Jolie de Paris, Champs Élysées. Ah. Such just a wonderful pronunciation. I just love it. It's music to my ears. No, I mean, I, I mean my order. maybe we'll do it. We'll do it real fast. Uh, a speed round at the end of the podcast to leave yeah. people with um, some wonderful pronunciation. So yeah, they, they won't just be saying like Sisteron to Orsiers Merlat and uh, Milo to Lover Lover. Yeah. Oh, Milo. I, I I I'm a big fan of Milo. That's uh, Mio. 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 With uh, the big bridges right there. Yeah, that's gorgeous. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, eat pretty well there too. Yeah, um, wasn't that wasn't that with you, Fred? A few years ago, we stood up in the Gorge de Tarn. We oh, that's that, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, we rolled into that place and had, a, had the three sisters running the place. We were just like pigs and pigs in mud there, weren't we? Yeah, except that the I mean the food was good, but it was very traditional. And I think one of the salads they served us was full of chicken hearts or something like that, or goat kidneys. Nice. Well, as long as there's a little bit, a little bit of uh, red, you'll be all right. <laughs> Yeah, there was a lot of bit of red that night. Um, yeah, that uh, that was a, that was a beautiful stay. You know, hoodie. As you look at how the tour progresses, you know we have um, hills and we have mountains early, and then it seems to settle down with more flat stages. But you know, as you look at the topography and how it escalates throughout this Tour de France, I mean, what is the the storyline that this tour is going to paint? Is it going to be you know, you said lack of a knockout punch, but I mean, it really, to me, seems like the GC guys and the climbers, they have to be pretty alert early in this race, as opposed to the tours of old where, you know, some of these guys could kind of put it on cruise control for the first week or so. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 hot from the gun in, in this route. I mean, you don't want to be a sprinter in this Tour de France. I mean, in fact, a lot of the top spinners have kind of just given up on the tour because it's gotten to be these these profiles that have these ridiculous climbs. Uh, we've seen over the years just the spritz have just kind of been almost eliminated. Like those the traditional spritz that would attract guys like Marcel Kittle and even Tyler Farah said that <clears throat> when he stopped winning is when the tour got harder. Um, but yeah, it, it starts it starts heavy. You know, it skirts a little bit. That's kind of uh, the the climbs there around the edges of the Alps and gets into the edges of the Massif Central and then gets into the the Pyrenees into that first week. Uh, again, you know, this rate, this, 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 this course to me, the more I was studying it, it's like, yeah, you can lose the tour on any day, but there's not a day where you could actually win the tour. There's no real terrain where a one rider, like a Chris Froome, you know, a few years ago at that first, uh, mountaintop finale, I think it was 2013 and the periods, it was just rode away from everybody and the race was over. Of course, as James said, you know, that's what the race organizer wants. They want it to be this tug of war all the way into Paris and that final time trial at, uh, in, in the Vosges. But there's no real attacking terrain in this tour until you get into the Alps at that end of that, into that uh, middle of that third week, you know, uh, with those real hard stages in the Alps. And again, those are smaller stages. So, but it's a hard tour, no doubt about it. It's, a, it's full of traps. Uh, but I, again, I just, I'm sticking to my talking point where I just don't see a place that someone can really blow the race wide open until, you know, you get into this well into the third week. And again, that, I mean, that's not a bad thing. It's just different. I think in the way the tour is set up and I think it, it just going to change the race, the dynamics completely, because I think everyone will be holding back like last year's tour, uh, as exciting as it was, it really was kind of a neutralized race until, you know, really those last couple of climbs in the Alps. Well, I, um, I have, I think it's going to be a really exciting race. Because of that, I think the racing is not always going to be off the front, but off the back. Who's blowing up at any given time? Because, you know, obviously can't overlook that, you know, people are going to be coming to this year's tour with very little racing in their legs. And it's really going to be about who has charted out the best training preparation and been able to get ready for a race like the Tour de France in training rather than racing. Um, and there's going to be some people that just miss their mark on that. And so you're going to have surprises throughout. I mean, that, that, uh, that that uh, was at stage four up to Orsier uh, Merlet. I mean, that was a famous stage back in the early seventies. That was where uh, Luis Ocaña had his one of his you know his great exploits, dropping Merckx. Um, and it's not high mountains, but you know it's you're hitting you're hitting the Southern Alps on day four, 
And you're going to come in those first couple of days, it's going to be, you know, all out racing. And all of a sudden you're, you're dealing with a like 1500 meter climb or two. And, uh, and we'll just see where that goes. You know, I, mean, I think there's going to be surprises on that day. I think there are going to be surprises when you're crossing over the, 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 the Mont uh, Aguiol is going to be hard that stage. Uh, you know, there's going to be all kinds of, uh, hard stages. A lot of those things in the Massif are not killer climbs. It's just up and down all day. It's a race of attrition. So I think there's going to be a lot of surprises all the way until that final weekend. You know, Hoodie, you said that when you look at this course, you think that people are going to be a bit conservative and playing the cards close to the vest. How do you think then that looks for this tour where we have, you know, uh, an Ineos with uh, three potential leaders. We have a Yumbo Visma with three potential GC leaders. We have um, other teams that are backing one, maybe two riders, but really it's this heavyweight battle between two extremely strong GC teams, both of which are coming in with three protective leaders. You know, conservative course, or, you know, course lacking a knockout punch, potential for really tight racing, and now two teams with um, three cards to play. I mean, what, what type of dynamic do you think that is going to present? Yeah, I certainly agree with James in terms of how the COVID-19 is going to be a, a affecting the, the dynamics of this year's tour and all the, all the racing we're about to see. You know, the tour of Burgos starts next week, so it's going to be interesting to see, you know, just how risers come off this big long break going into the tour, which will be the, for the first time, will be the first grand tour of the season. Um, but yeah, I'm not trying to say it's an easy tour. I think it's a very hard tour, of course. So I think that's why I'm kind of uh, thinking that that uh, riders will be just trying to kind of keep their matches uh, you know, dry going into that last week. But having those two teams up top is going to really, I think, lead to perhaps even a more controlled race because not only we have Ineos driving at pace, controlling the race, you're going to have Jumbo Visma pitching in because it'll be in their mutually assured interest there that that both of those teams want to tap things down and control the breakaways. And then it'll set up this kind of battle royale, we hope, between those six leaders. I mean, we could roll into Paris into that final time trial and have those six top six places be Ineos and Jumbo Visma very easily. I think all those riders are quite equal. I mean, the big question mark's going to be Froome and then the whole COVID wildcard scenario. But it's a course that I guess doesn't of those six does not favor Dumoulin as much, but he's obviously a great climber. You can hang with, with anybody in that big climb. So, um, you know, it creates a lot of uh, uh, unknown. So, you know, that's a good thing. You don't want a tour that's going to be predictable and boring, I guess, right from the go. But I don't know, man. Lately, I've been like old school. I've been reflecting on some of these old Weltas and tours and Giros, you know, over these past several months, looking at these old races. And yeah, I mean, sometimes they were boring. You know, there's no doubt about it. Uh, it was a different kind of racing. But, you know, that, that old traditional tour model in many ways wasn't really that bad. You had a prologue. You know, when's the last time I had a prologue? It's been many years since I've had a prologue. I like the prologue. And then you have, like, the those four or five, six stages that are kind of transition stages where the sprinters are battling for the jersey. You get the time bonuses. You got a lot of posturing among the sprint teams. Throw on a team time trial in there. Then you roll into some climbs. That wasn't a bad way to do a grand tour. I like the new way. But the old way wasn't so bad either. I, I like the old way from a journalistic perspective because it gave us, like the riders, a week to kind of work into it. And that opening week you had, you know, 
the, the race wasn't so much for the yellow and the favorites. So you have plenty of time to do lots of cool reporting on, you know, smaller stories. And now, uh, since Christian Prudhomme has, has been in charge, his, he comes from television and he's like, no, the modern viewer can't have a week of sprints. We can't have a week of monotony. So every, no more than two stages in a row for the sprinters, every third stage minimum has to mix it up with an uphill finish or something tense or exciting. Um, that's going to, you know, really rattle it. And um, for television and for the spectators, it's good. But it means that the riders and 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 the media are just, like, on for the whole entire month. It's very intense. And the, each of those technical stages also often uh, impose logistical complications that make it very hard to get to the finish, very hard to work. Um, it just adds a lot of stress all around. But it does make for um, some pretty great racing. And, and I, I actually happen to like the fact that there are, are no huge, huge climbs because I think that opens up the racing. I think, I mean, at the, at the presentation of this year's tour, they're going, oh, it's a tour for Pinot. I don't know why that they, they were saying that. Uh, I think because the finishing time trial is on the Planche de Belfi, which is in his region, but, you know, who cares? Um, at, the, at the end of three weeks, it's not about, you know, the hometown hero. It's about who's got legs. Um, I think it's a perfect tour for Alaphilippe. Um, I think it's an absolutely perfect tour for Alaphilippe. I also think it's a pretty good tour for Bardet if he's got his leg. I'm not surprised he won't because attackers are opportunities. And, um, and it's, that's what it's going to come down to. But, I mean, I could easily see uh, Alaphilippe uh, running, running, at the, running yellow again for another two weeks and then, you know, having it come down to that last uh, weekend of the mountains. Yeah, so we're saying, okay, you know, tighter race, potentially potential for more controlled racing because we have these three or these two heavy hitter teams, both of whom have three protected riders. And we see it boiling over in the third week. I mean, I'm with you. At first glance, I thought, oh man, this this might be a boring tour. This might be a, a nervous controlled tour where no one is really wanting to, to take chances. But the fact that some of these early stages have sizable climbs, um, you're going to want to watch those because you're not going to see the, the Tour de France won on those stages, but you are going to see it lost. Like There's always going to be some GC star who, you know, a lot of people are backing who just isn't going to have it in those first few days and lose a bunch of time and their tour is over. So that's definitely a reason to tune in. I see the middle of the tour as a reason to tune in because, yeah, I mean, some of these uh, Pyrenean stages and even some of these um, – these hilly stages, I feel like, have the potential for good breakaways. Like, I see a potential for some, like, Thomas DeGent, Tim Wellens, Lotto going for it action, you know, Gilbert on that team. And then, obviously, you got to tune in for the Alps. Um, I still think, though, I would not be surprised if this thing was, like, you know, five GC guys separated by two minutes heading into the final time trial with that deciding the overall. I mean, what do we make of the... The new model with, you know, zero big, long, flat ITTs and it all coming down to this um, uphill finish TT. What does that represent for the tour? Well, it's not, it doesn't give TT riders much of a chance, huh? Yeah. I mean, uh, a uphill TT is going to favor the climbers and B, the climbers always do well in a late race um, in a late race TT because it's the, the TT, the, the TT in the last two or three days of the tour is more about reserves and fatigue than it is about time trialing. I mean, Pantani, when he won the tour, got third in the final TT. Um, and he's no time trialer, right? Um, so I don't think um, I don't think there's a whole lot of room for a pure TT a guy like, say, Dumoulin to, uh, to, to, to express himself. That said, he'll probably struggle a little bit less 
on these climbs that are 1500 meters. I, I just, I'm, I'm, I think it's going to be such an unpredictable tour and I'm, I'm kind of looking at it more like, all right, who can blow this race apart and turn, and turn the two different, the two armadas on their backs. Alaphilippe almost did it last year. People were, didn't quite know how good he was and realized that maybe they'd given him too much time. And, and he just, you know, it was only in the last two days where he really wore himself out. But uh, I, I, you know, he's got the capability of really blowing this race open. I think Nairo, Nairo Quintana is going to be a real, real dangerous factor in this race. He showed it in Paris-Nice. He doesn't, he doesn't need 2,000-meter climb to, to, to do his damage. Give him a 1,000-meter climb, and he's, he can blow the race open. And I think that as soon as he um, has a chance, he's going to be doing that. I, I think uh, yeah, I agree with what James said, the possibility for someone to kind of uh, – or what you were saying, Fred, too, someone to surprise the big juggernauts. But I, I fully expect um, – Enios to come up with something that no one's expecting because that's always been their card they've played over the years. It's always much easier to win the tour when you're in the yellow jersey early. So I expect them to try to do something to get some one of their riders coming out of the Pyrenees in yellow and then really put the pressure on uh, uh, Jumbo Visma to try to try to attack them. Because Jumbo Visma, you know, they're new to this game. If they haven't won a tour yet. They won the Welt last year, the Primos, uh, Roglic, and then, of course, uh, you know, kind of learned some lessons during that Giro last year with Primos. Um, but uh, I think that it's it's a, it's a race that uh, I, I think it will be decided. Well, I personally think it, it will be decided before we get to that final time trial. I think that final time trial um, yeah. will prove pivotal, pivotal for the uh, final podium spots. But I think by then, I think we should see a pretty clear uh, yellow jersey. That's just my hunch. So if you were to look at this course and um, create a list of both riders that benefit from this course and riders that this course does not benefit, who goes in each category? Who's in the, uh, this ride, you know, this course is built for these riders and then this course is not built for these riders. And even start. Yeah, I mean, on paper, you could say that uh, it doesn't really favor perhaps Dumoulin. You know, he's probably the most classic kind of old school time trial as you can climb profile type of rider. Um, you know, I think it, I think the, any kind of singular rider, it doesn't have a strong team will struggle in this. I think that the guys on Enios and Jumbo Visma will have an advantage. You know, James was saying, I want form Nairo could, could do well, but maybe he could find himself isolated uh, quite early if he does kind of take yellow or get into a, a situation like that. So I think you need a strong team and you need to be a strong climber. Uh, and there's a lot of guys on Enios and Jumbo Visma that fit that bill, you know, just pick, pick a number. Yeah. yeah. What about a Pino? What about a Pino or even a Valverde? Yeah. You know, I was just thinking about Pino. Um, you know, Pino is so unpredictable. And, Val, and Valverde could be, you know, tremendous. Uh, Valverde is at his best. But every time I put Valverde on my fantasy velo team, he, like, crashes or does something stupid. I mean, um, I don't know. Um, I, I, you know, I, I see a lot – with these climbs, there's a lot of guys that are going to be able to get over these climbs. I mean, Nairo – where are you going to drop a guy like Nairo Quintana? Where are you going to drop a guy like Pino? Um, so it's going to be – Strategic. It's going to be the guys who are racing aggressive that can grab some time on a day when somebody's having an off day. And you don't quite expect it. 
Um, and again, a lot of the racing is going to be off the back. Who's having the bad day? Who's who's being surprised by that their that their training wasn't wasn't spot on? Um, but you know, and everybody's training is going to be different. I mean, these Colombians have been in three four thousand meters of altitude for how long? I mean, th- that's that's an unknown factor. How, you know, I mean, they're they're coming back a month before this the start of the race, but man, that's a huge advantage. So. Uh, it's going to be between the the preparation, the varying levels of preparation of different riders around the world coming here. The lack of racing before the tour, um, I just I think there's going to the, the the race is going to be lost more than it's going to be won. Well, if you want to have your hot takes, for your buddies on the group ride or on the uh, Zoom chat, yeah, I mean, tight racing, unpredictable tour, mountains come early, so some favorites may get sucker punched and be out of it before uh, we even get to the first half. But uh, it sounds like everyone's in agreement that, um, you know, the racing will be tight. Ineos and Yumbo have advantages. So before we get out of here, one more time, James Starr, I want you to go through these tour stage names and just like, you know, like you're, like you're in front of a, a crowd at an opera and you're just belting out these names with the best most appropriate uh, french pronunciation so everyone can feel like an expert all right let me get a close and put it on my nose okay uh, nice is still nice Cisteron, uh, gap villard de long priva uh no i'm sorry i'm sorry gap to priva le, le toy to mont egual uh, mio to lavour caser to ludanve La Rune, la, la, la Rune, la Rune de, to Pau, Ile de uh, Oléron to Ile de Ré, uh, come on, uh, Châtelaillon to uh, Châtelaillon de Plage to Poitiers, Chauvigny to Saran, uh, then we move up to Châtelbouillon to Puy-Marie, Clermont-Ferrand to Lyon, Lyon to Grand Colombier. Sixteen is La Roche sur uh, Forant to Miribel, Miribel to uh, what? I don't. Is that right? Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm, I'm getting my sixteen, eighteen. So after fifteen, we go to Grand Colombier, and then we go to uh, Le Tour de Pin to Villard de Long. Then we go from Grenoble to Miribel, Miribel to La Roche sur Forant, and then Bourg-en-Bresse to uh, Champagnol and Lourdes to La Planche de Belfie and Mont La Jolie to Prix All right. Well, we will be back next week to take a deep dive into stages one through 10 to explore the climbs, the hills, the starts and finishes. Um, we got some mountain days, some breakaway days, and some sprint days in the first half of the tour. So, uh, James and Hoodie will be back. Okay. Up next. My interview with Zoe Ta Perez. Tremendous. Look forward to it. Last week on the podcast, we heard from Magnus Sheffield, one of the country's top up and coming junior men. This week, we're talking to one of the country's up and coming junior women, Zoe Ta Perez. Zoe is a member of the Lux Sideshow. Uh, development team. She is a reigning world champion alongside Megan Yastrab in the Madison. Uh, she's also a graduate of Canyon High School in Orange County. And she is an 11 or possibly 12-time national champion. We couldn't quite 
dial that one in. Zoe, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Fred. So um, before we get to all these hard-hitting questions about how COVID has impacted your world, is it 11 or 12-time national champion? We need to dial this in. Which, which national championship is on the bubble that, we can't, that we're not sure of? I think it's 12. I just – there's a team sprint in there from when I was 15 that I just like totally <laughs> forgot about, but I'm pretty sure it's 12. <laughs> I love it. When you have so many national championships by the time you're uh, 18 years old that you can't keep track of them all. <laughs> must, uh, must be a hard, uh, hard problem to have. <laughs> I guess so. So, Zoe, last week when I spoke to Magnus, I really wanted to drill into um, how – the coronavirus shutdown in racing was impacting me, uh, guys who are in the junior development program. These are the you know potential world tour stars of tomorrow. They're 17, 18 right now, looking for opportunities to race and gain exposure and get results. And I'm also I'm really curious about how that's impacting both you and the other. Um, women who are part of the junior up and coming program, you know, you all are training all the time, racing all the time, looking for events, both overseas and in the States to show yourself and like try to get to the next level of sport. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. the sport just shuts down. So from a broad perspective, I mean, how has the racing shutdown impacted you? Yeah, it's a really strange time. I think last year was just super full gas. I felt like I was barely home. I was always on the go, carrying my schoolwork around, racing. And then this year, it's just, there's a lot of downtime. It's nice to be home with family and to see my sisters and be with my brother and parents. But um, I'm definitely missing racing. And it's a lot of a lot of training. Just lay off. <laughs> definitely a lot of training. <laughs> like, what would the spring have looked like for you? Um, last year, I met you. We were at the uh, USA Cycling Development House in Sittard. I mean, was that going to be another part of your spring for 2020? Yeah, we were planning on going in the spring for the March and April block. And when that got canceled, uh, we Mari was able to scrap up a plan of us going back in May, hopefully. And then obviously COVID escalated. So we had to just kind of shut that all down and just try to find racing. And we were hoping to come back for Colorado Classic. But as we all know, like that just got canceled. And I mean, that was the right decision. But yeah, it's a bummer. Yeah, because I mean, you're at this um, important age in a cyclist development where, you know, you are trying to have teams look at you. You're trying to get results as a young person, turn heads so that you'll get hired onto a pro team for next year or the years afterwards. I mean, without the racing there, how are you trying to make those relationships and how are you trying to get yourself noticed? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think going into this year, Races like Redlands and the Nations Cups were going to be really important just to kind of showcase all the hard work and training and hopefully get a good result. But with that gone, it's establishing connections through email and also just training really hard and hoping that World Championships does happen and that we'll have a good performance. So it just puts a lot more pressure on the races at the end of the year then? I'd say so, but... um, Usually when I those when it comes to those big races, I think it's more about just like being present and giving it a hundred percent and it'll come together. I'm not I, I don't really like I'm not gonna be going in and thinking about 
next year or teams. It's more just like showing up, giving 100% and hoping for the best. How did you work through all that from a psychological and emotional standpoint? I mean, seeing these races get knocked off the calendar mm -hmm. when you had adjusted your life and you know, dedicated a lot of effort and emotional energy towards it. It must have been disappointing. Mm -hmm. How did you work your work yourself through it? Yeah, I mean, I'll be transparent. It was it wasn't easy. I, I was pretty heartbroken at first. I think I, at first I kind of just like bottled it up and I was just like, okay, well, we just keep on training. But I, I really had to like step back and acknowledge that I did change a lot of my life to for this one year. But I've like come to that point where like I just have to keep moving moving forward and look at the big picture and I'm really grateful that I have like a really good te support team between like Lux, my coach, my parents that have really like just pushed me to like just keep on training for the future and I think that's like really sparked a lot of intrinsic motivation and it's really helped me just like continue training and looking for like just little goals to keep myself to just like keep improving. You know, something Magnus had talked about was trying to keep in touch with the other guys who he would have been at the USA Second Development House with, you know, over email, calls, yeah. texts, stuff like that. Have you been doing that with the other uh, girls who you would have been at the house with? Oh, for sure. I mean, with social media, it's so easy to get in contact. And on top of that, we have Strava and we're, we're always like keeping each other accountable and making sure everyone's training and getting it done. And if anyone ever needs like a FaceTime call or anything like that, I mean, it's just one click away and we're in contact with each other. So give me a little taste of like what what's the convo topics like of uh, in this group? You know, <laughs> you're all these aspiring pro cyclists. You're not able to race, but you're training a lot. You live in different cities across the country. Like, what do you what do y'all talk about? Uh, for the girls, we, we can talk about anything. I mean, we'll talk about school. We'll talk about racing, upcoming plans, dreams, vacations. I mean... At some point, I think like there's a few of us that we want to do like a really epic camp at in like Spain or something, but we'll see. <laughs> Has anybody uh, anybody been doing any like big long crazy training rides? You know, I'm sure you've seen like the gravel space. People have been losing their minds and going and riding like 200 miles by themselves. Oh yeah, I mean, I have a few teammates that I'll, I'll see on Strava, and I'm just like, why would you do that? But I think it's it's super cool to challenge yourself in different ways and. I'm, I like watching it. <laughs> I don't know if I'll do like a super crazy ride, but <laughs> we'll see. You know, one thing I've always been interested in, in the relationship that is fostered between um, junior cyclists who race on the national team, you live in different cities, you know, you, you have this close bond for a few months mm -hmm. during the summer, is that at the end of the day, you're also like teenagers going to school, living in your normal communities, probably in communities where you don't have a ton of cyclists who are your own age. You know, as you've yeah. come up in the sport, like what role have those friendships and connections played for you, um, played in your life? The friendships from the national team? Friendships team? from the national team or just, you know, like other friend, friends who you've made through cycling who aren't necessarily in your backyard, but, you know, you share this passion. Oh, I think it is so important and it's made such a huge impact on me. I, I think I mean, going with the girls over to the, to Sittard in spring and living with them and then also going to world championships with them. I think it's it's been really meaningful because we've just been through like that stress and that 
high pressure environment, but then we've also learned to like have fun and just really enjoy what we're doing. So, I mean, I really think that these friendships will last a lot, a lifetime. And I hope that like we can look back in 10 years and like just look at the good times and just cherish it. How are they different from the friendships that you might have from school or from kids who you grew up with? Um, I think it's just different because we all share a love of just riding and training. And I think it's a different mentality of bringing like that competitive edge, but then just the joy of riding a bicycle. Like um, some of my friends from school, they'll just be like, why would you ride for four hours? Like your tan lines are terrible. Like go tan at the beach. But it's definitely different. And it's more of just like a home and a family environment, I would say. Yeah. Like what can you talk about that? What can you talk about with them that like, if you were to talk about with your friends at home, they would just kind of like roll their eyes. I think just like training hours and just even like weird cycling quirks. I don't know. Just like the whole like bonking thing, like going through that, like going through something hard like that together. It's totally different. And I just feel like it bonds you. (laughs) Conversely, then how do you like, how do you balance that? I'm always curious that when talking with top juniors of like how you balance that with the life of a normal, like high school existence where you have, you know, football games and friends who don't know anything about cycling and you have this sort of like life outside of school that is so bizarre and strange. Like how have you managed that over the years? Yeah, it's, it's not an easy task, but I think it takes a lot of planning and also just being relaxed and adaptable. I think that like last year I had a full schedule with high school and all that racing. And my teachers would just look at me like, you're crazy. Like you're not going to be able to handle that. But I think when you really want to do something, it's, it's pretty easy to just prioritize what you need to do and what you want to do. And of course, like you have to allow yourself to see your friends and like go to the beach. Like those are normal high, teenager things that I think like everyone should give and like have time for that but then you also have to like set out time for okay I need to like actually recover this day or I really need to nail this workout so it's just planning I would say and if you really want something I think that you just have to like you have to pick and choose what elements of I guess I would say normal teenager life though do you feel like you have missed out on? I mean, cycling is this sport that requires its top athletes to sacrifice sometimes. And I and I'm curious, I mean, when you look at the life of a you know, a traditional normal teenager, where do you feel like you have had to sacrifice? Yeah, I think like I missed out on some like really late nights where like I don't know, my friends like would spontaneously want to go to the beach or They'd want to go on a late night drive, but I think I would sometimes, and if, if I'm like deep in a training blog, I'd prefer to get my sleep in. And it's great when you have friends that understand that. And there's, I'm really grateful that I have friends that will just like, they keep on inviting me to things. So then it's just like, we can just like, I try to just like go when I can, but they understand if, if I can't make it. So you're like, hey, keep the invites, co- keep the texts coming, you know, like, I'm probably going to say no to a, a number of them, but every now and again, you're going to get me out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess, but it's also good that most of them also like are athletes. So they did understand that part. I, they're, obviously, their schedule isn't as like rigorous and they didn't have to like miss a big chunks of school, but they were able to just kind of understand. Yeah. <laughs> 
No, I mean that makes sense. I, you know, something I've always also been curious of is like I was a I was a high school athlete. I was a swimmer and I played lacrosse, mm-hmm. and those were both sports that like you know they were affiliated with the school. Like kids would come to the actual competitions and watch us. Um, yeah. You know, you would be honored if you had some great achievement in front of the school. Like you felt like you were, you know, ingrained in the fabric of the school through your sport. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I-, I talked to kids who are in NICA and it sounds like that they're beginning to have ele- elements of that with NICA. But with road racing yeah. and track racing, that's that's not like that like there. And I'm curious, like how it was for you, you know. You're living this life outside of school. You're accomplishing these great things, national championships, world championships. But like it's not, I guess, honored the same way that like a high school tennis championship would be recognized. Yeah. I mean, I think I could I, I could understand that. But I also think that we have a really good community here in California. And I think like I have a pretty good like close knit. I like training partners on top of that most of my Lux teammates are from SoCal so I mean it's pretty easy for me to like text them be like can we go train or something so I get to share that with them and also just like my family also they like been through that with me and then I have my brother but I could understand that like it's not as big of a sport as like something like basketball or swimming or something like that but I think to me, it's just like more of like a special little thing that like I get to put away and I I like it like that. But I could see how people like wouldn't if they like want that, like all the attention and lights. But (laughs) I think it just depends on the person. What's your origin story in cycling? How'd you get into this wacky sport? Yeah, so I I was pretty into running from like 10 to 14. I did club and... Uh, I was racing nationals and doing cross country and track. So that was like full time. And then my dad started, he was um, really into mountain biking and he raced and then he started taking us to the track once a week. So that was just like a really fun thing that we do on every Friday. We drive up to LA, my brother and my friend Michaela, and it was just like a really fun thing. And then we started racing and then we got into road and then it just kind of kicked off from there. When, once we did our first national championship, then we started kind of just training a little bit more, I guess. And then as the years went on, you just kind of build up more, mm-hmm. more volume, I guess. But So, I mean, Southern California, mm-hmm. women's road racing, women's track racing. One name really comes to mm-hmm. mind. And that, of course, is Corinne Rivera, who, um, oh, yeah. you know, she's from mm-hmm. um, that area. So many national championships, ton of success, you know crushing it in the group rides. I mean, did you know of Corinne? Had you heard of her? Were you, you know, what did, did she play any role in you like wanting to pursue bikes or seeing there was a career there for girls from the region to race bikes? Yeah, no, Corinne has been a great mentor and friend. She's actually a family friend. And I remember when I was younger, we would go to Sea Otter to watch my dad race and I would play with her sister in their RV. And it was just like, I, I wasn't racing. I, I was just there for like vacation, but it was cool because she was a junior at the time and we would watch her race. And um, she actually lives only like 30, 45 minutes away from me. So when she's in town, we'll ride together and I'll see her out on the group ride. So it's great like having such a great mentor close by and she's an open book. So I feel like she's been a really big support. 
I feel like she's an open book, even in our interviews. I love talking to Corinne. She holds nothing back. <laughs> yeah, I know. She's the best. She's so funny. And she's just, she's, a, she's just like an all around great person. You know, when I also have talked to a number of um, young women cyclists, I ask them about the hurdles that all cyclists, but definitely female cyclists face in sort of the development phase, which is like, hey, you have a bad crash. You know, hey, you know, you, you got to go training. It's crappy weather outside and with you know and talking to like magnus and other young male cyclists like a lot of times there's more boys their age to go ride with and like the, the simple truth of cycling unfortunately is that like female participation tends to be pretty small and so i'm always curious like how did you make it past some of those early hurdles associated with racing you know crashes injuries like not wanting to train burnout stuff like that you know knowing that you probably didn't have like 20 or 30 gals your age to go ride with how did you make it through those early hurdles yeah i think well probably the biggest thing is i've always had my brother with me and when we were younger i'd say it was easier because all the boys that i still train with today i was still able to like level up with them just because they hadn't hit like the huge growth spurt and once that growth spurt happened it was more like okay you guys are just gonna pull me around but it's always been fun because they're super welcoming they always bring me along and they don't mind and it's always fun and and fast so i enjoy it and it's always competitive yeah and are they cool to you or do they give you a hard time um no they're pretty cool i think uh, I'll drag them to like, we'll like, there'll be a segment that I want to do to like get the QOM. Be like, can you guys pace me? And they're always, they'll always, they'll always do it. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, what's your like, what's your like, go-to group ride that you do there in Southern California? Oh, okay. Um, probably the big one is on Saturdays we have food park and Sunday uh, we have Como. So yeah, those are just full gas i mean como's always hard and you always see like local pros i mean we had a huge amount of people last sunday um and on usually in the off season corinne will come out and uh, we also have like people like kevin and andrew who are really fast riders who will come out and then on top of that the junior boys will come out too so it's a it's a good like race simulation yeah, Corinne has talked to us about Como and how hard it is and, you know, it's, oh, yeah. it's a really breakneck pace. I mean, how do you get treated in that group ride? Are people cool? Are they, like, chopping you? Are they, are mm. they like, not wanting to get chicked? Like, what? Uh, what's the dynamic like? Oh, for sure. For, <laughs> for sure. You have, like, the older guys that will, like, they don't, like, know who you are and then they see, like, this girl come by you and they're like, oh, no way. And they won't, like, give you the wheel. But I'll, I'll, usually I just have to, like, hold my ground. I don't let anyone push me around. Or, <laughs> but it's it's a good it's good just to like mix it up but yeah it's pretty funny because people get pretty serious you know last year um i met you when we were at this house considered and um there was the junior boys team and the junior girls team and um mm -hmm. I, I just remember every time i'd go over to your section of the house you guys would be like studying diligently and like you know kind of <laughs> like maybe doing some gossiping but like getting your homework done <laughs> and then i'd go over yeah. to the, the boys section and like there was no studying going on. It was like chaos and video <laughs> games. No, there was some studying going on. Um, how do you guys maintain 
what uh, first of all, how would you describe life over there? You know, in between the racing, and how do you guys make you know get your schoolwork done, stay in contact with professors? Like, how do you try to live a normal life when you're at this house in the middle of the Netherlands? Oh yeah, um, it's totally different. I think there was one week I remember where time was just going by so slow, and we were pretty bored, but. I was pretty busy with school and I, I knew that like when I came home, I did not want to be slammed with homework. So I was like always just doing work and being that person that was like nagging my teachers to make sure that like I was on top of everything. But most of the time we would just like walk to a coffee shop, walked for lunch or we'd go to a coffee. We'd go for like a cafe stop after a ride or we'd go on like a walk. But that was really it. I think the girls that we we started a TV show together, which was pretty fun. But that was yeah, we was just like cycling, studying, lounging, maybe some core in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was interesting to me. It, it seemed like a neat dynamic, and and like you said, like these are girls who are you know you've probably known them for a long time. You don't necessarily live around all of them, but you're all of the same age. Mm-hmm. You're all very good cyclists, and you know your careers will hopefully progress um, alongside one another. So, I mean, what does it look like next for you? You have graduated high school early. This year was supposed to be a big racing year for you. It has not been because of the shutdown. Like what do the next years look like for you in the sport? And then hopefully, you know, also just in in your life. Yeah. So right now I'm really hoping that world championships happens in Switzerland and that we can get there. So I'm basically just training, but if that doesn't occur, I'm still just training for the future and developing as an athlete. I think, well, I know <laughs> for going next into next fall, I'll be um, going back to UC Irvine to get my degree in biology, hopefully. So I'm just taking a few classes right now to get some GEs knocked out, but I'll be in school and then training hopefully get back on the track and and develop more as an, a track athlete too. And, and then hopefully do some of the the races in the domestic circuit next year and just get a feel for that. Cause I think a big thing that I missed out on this year was doing the bigger races like Redlands and Gila. So yeah, hopefully getting that experience next year. And when you look at the opportunities out there in cycling, I mean, are you thinking like, European road career, Olympic track career, you know, um, what are, what would, what do you want to point yourself towards in the sport? Yeah. I mean, I'm not really sure. I, I really do want to pursue track. I think, you know, going to last summer, I went to the team pursuit camp and I got to see the dynamic of the Olympic team pursuit team. And I, I really do love the whole the girls and the coaching system going on over there. I think it's a really positive environment and seeing all their hard work and then seeing it pay off at like worlds and then what they've been just doing the past three years. It's been really awesome and I'd love to be a part of that. But I do also like really want to work to go overseas one day and like race in Europe and time trial and ride the Giro Rosa, like all those things really do appeal to me, but I don't know yet. So I'm just taking one step at a time. So we'll see. Well, Zoe, I really appreciate you setting aside some time today. It's Zoe Taparez, 12-time national champion, 
one-time world champion. Um, we're going to keep our eyes on you because I am predicting big things uh, in oh, the future. Even with this racing shutdown, it's going to be a minor setback in the, um, the much longer story of Zoe's pro career. 